0: Well, let's turn to this uh, beautiful story of Ruth. It's called the Book of Ruth. It's really about the experience that uh, her mother-in-law had and uh, that she herself was brought into. And it's a wonderful example of the way God deals with us and draws us to himself. It has a very contemporary ring to it. Particularly, I think, when we think of economic migrants who travel to other countries, including our own, because of economic hardships in their own countries. That's the kind of thing that happened here. When Naomi and her husband Elimelech and her two sons moved from the land of Judah to Moab because of famine in their own country, they were forced to emigrate, if you like, to another country, and they encountered another religion there. There were other gods that the people of Moab worshipped, gods to do with fertility and prosperity, and they had to cope with that. They experienced personal tragedy and loss. Naomi not only lost her husband, but also her two sons who died in Moab, although the two sons had married Moabites girls, but they were struck by tragedy and loss. And this young lady, this young widow, Ruth, she decided to forsake her own religion, the religion that she'd been brought up with, and to become a member of God's covenant people. It's the kind of thing that happens today in our world, as we know. And her decision, her choice to do that, is expressed in these wonderful words. When she says to her mother-in-law, who has pleaded with both her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab, she says to her mother-in-law, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me." What is striking, I think, about these lovely words is They express the way God brings us to himself and then eventually afterwards leads us on in our earthly lives. Ruth chose to follow Naomi and above everything else to follow Naomi's God, the true God, the God of all grace. And we need to face that kind of decision ourselves. There's a tremendous lot of religious confusion about today. I remember as a young man, we used to study what they call contemporary religion. Well, people are now studying all kinds of contemporary religions and it's bewildering. It's like that here. Here was a nation that was following its own gods And the children of Israel, who knew the Lord and knew something of his activity in their lives, they were compromising their own religion with the religion of Moab and other religions in the area because they were all interested in prosperity and fertility and success. It was a time of spiritual and moral chaos. Last uh, verse of the previous book, the book of Judges, tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, you're shocked and appalled at what you read, but it's very similar to what you see today in our modern society. So in that kind of context, what made this lady make the decision that she did? And what does that say to us about our own decision-making in this respect? What caused her to make this choice? To identify herself with Naomi, to want to stay with her, to lodge with her, to travel with her, to be with her, to return to her country, and to take her God to be her own God. What made her do that? Well, the culture, as I say, was against her. Her own people had become worshippers of other gods, and had begun to live a life of depravity. They tried to reconcile their own religion with pagan religion, in a kind of compromise. Comparative religion, they used to call it. And comparative religion makes you comparatively religious. That's what was happening. There was no king in Israel, and yet she made this choice. Why? What was it? What influenced her? And there's a message, I think, for us in that. Because of the influence of other people, very often we are drawn to think seriously about God and about the ultimate issues of life. That can happen in the affection of a home or of a marriage. Where parents um, and children enjoy a bond of affection together as they did. That's a great blessing. It's a great blessing to have parents who really love you, who may not necessarily tolerate your behavior and yet they love you. There's something almost unconditional about their love. And that's something powerful and it's a drawing, an attractive thing. Or oh, It's the same in a husband-wife relationship where perhaps one is a Christian and another isn't, and yet the Christian loves that husband or wife, and there's a bond of affection there. That can have a profound impact upon us. You find that happening here. And then, of course, because Ruth would... Have been familiar with Naomi's background, she would have known a bit about what God had done in the life of the children of Israel. Naomi was a believer in the Lord. She speaks about him here very openly. And she would have spoken openly to both her daughters-in-law about him. She would have reminded them of the glorious deliverance that the children of Israel had had when God brought them out of Egypt. In the Exodus, led them through the Red Sea, directed them in the wilderness, gave them a land, provided them with leaders, gave them a sacrificial system, a law to obey, gave them the worship that they were accustomed to enjoy. So she would have spoken about all of that. And that account of God's dealings with Naomi's nation in history would have obviously had an appeal. We need to hear the story, don't we, of God's dealings with his people. We need to read the history that is contained in the Bible. We need to read the history of the Christian church. The story of God's wonderful works. That's a tremendous blessing when we are familiar with it. So information, instruction about what God has done is crucial. It's one of the drawing attractive things that influenced Ruth. And then she saw what Naomi's reaction was to tragedy and loss. She shared that because she lost her own husband. But she could see in Naomi something very special. How did this lady respond to the loss? of a husband and her two sons. Did she deny the Lord? Did she cry out against him? No, she acknowledged him. She acknowledged that his hand was in that mysteriously. And she had chosen him to be her Lord and her God. She says that. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law when she was facing, going back to, the land of Judah, because now there was bread there. Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. The Lord, the Lord. She trusted God, even though her family life had been so seriously disrupted by tragedy. And it's wonderful when you see that. When you have the privilege of seeing true believers who respond to suffering in this positive way, grieving, yes, but at the same time rejoicing in God's grace and in his salvation. People who in the joys and the sorrows of life go on believing, go on trusting. What an impact they have. The Daniels of this world, the Jobes, the Christian martyrs, the Apostle Paul, people we know. What an inspiration, and challenge they are to us. We see something of the reality of the power of God and the gospel in their lives. So, these were the factors that had a profound effect upon Ruth the love, the affection, the godliness of her mother in law, the history of God's dealings with his people, and the wonderful way in which God had sustained her mother-in-law, in in their tragic circumstances. So we are very privileged when those things happen in our lives. And we must must value them and cherish them. But they're not enough, are they? Natural affection doesn't necessarily draw you to Christ. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law went back. Ruth clung to her and went on. That's what we're to do. So the affection itself is not enough, valuable though it is, nor is the knowledge of the Bible and the knowledge of history because many people study the Bible and they don't believe. They hear of the great works of God but they don't believe. So it's not enough to know about God though we need to and it's not enough even to have godly examples, people who respond to suffering and tragedy with real living faith we see something of God in them and God in that but it doesn't really make us believers something else is needed we need to decide for ourselves we need to choose We need to choose. What does that mean? I must believe for myself. I thank God for my own Christian home and background, and for the loving home that I was brought up in, and for the knowledge of the Bible that I received in my home, and for the preaching that I heard from my own father. But none of that made me a Christian. I assumed it did, but it didn't. I had to come to Christ for myself, not because I ought to, but because I must, I must believe. You can be impressed without believing. You can see faith triumphing without believing. You can know the facts of the gospel without believing. We are to respond to God's grace. We are not to take it for granted. We are to make decisions. We are to make choices. She chose the Lord to be her God. And what that means is that we have to turn our backs upon our former religion, our former beliefs, some of which are anti-Christian and atheistic or just merely religious. We have to turn away from that. The old gods. The gods that were worshipped in Moab. She had to turn from those old gods. Orpah went back to them, but Ruth didn't. We've got to turn our backs on idolatry. The idolatry that is rampant in our modern world. People say, well, I'm an atheist, but they're not. They all have gods. They all have idols. We all worship something or another. We are all religious, though we claim to be atheistic. It's not true. There's the worship of self, the worship of the great ego. We have to turn our backs on all the old religion and all the old gods that are worthless and useless And then we have to choose the Lord, God Almighty. It means choosing his people. It means going with God's people. It means standing with this despised minority, this remnant, who are often ignored, if not laughed at. We need to live among them. We need to make them our own people, the kind of people who really matter to us because of their lives, their characters, the quality of their faith. People laugh at Christians, they criticize them, but you're prepared to join them if you're to become a Christian yourself. You're to stand with this group of people and with the glorious infamy that they suffer. Christ loves the church. And therefore we should love it too. The people of God. We need to choose the people of God. Your people will be my people, she said. And we are not to join because of what we can get out of it. Ruth had very little to gain in becoming a believer. Naomi's life had been scarred when she got back into her own country. People who knew her said, is this Naomi? What's happened to her? The marks of her tragedy were in her bearing, in her face. She spoke about herself now as Mara, not Naomi. So she'd been scarred by life. And there was little that Ruth could gain from being associated with her. She couldn't provide her with another husband. But Ruth went with her. You don't care, you see, if you're going to become a believer in Christ. You don't care what people think. You do care for them, but you don't care what they say to you about this new religion that you want to follow, this new birth that you're talking about, or this Christ that you want to follow. You don't care about that. You're determined. You're determined. I'm going to believe. I'm going to follow him. He's worth it. He's glorious. I'm going to follow him. There's a cost. There's a cross. But you're prepared for it. And you choose God to be your God. Why do you do that? Well, you do it because he is God. Because he is the one true and only living God. Because he is the creator God. The God who controls all things, the God whose plans and purposes are fixed, the God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in triune love and joy in himself, the God who orders events, the God who controls history, the God who is everywhere. His center is everywhere, his circumference is nowhere. He's the God who can do anything and everything that he chooses. He's the God who sees and knows everything before a thought is in your mind. He knows. He's God. We are to follow him and believe in him and make him our own because of who he is. Your God will be my God. And then we are to follow him and believe in him and trust in him because he is good. You remember that lovely verse in Psalm 119, the Lord God is good and all he does is good. You see that sure, don't you? They return. Ruth marries a relative, Boaz. She becomes the great-grandmother of King David and the ancestor of great David's greatest son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Out of that tragedy, out of that loss, God works good. All things work together, said Paul, for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is good. He is good in all that he does. He is a God to be loved and worshipped because of that. He is to be worshipped and loved and chosen because he is God and because he is good and because he is gracious. He is the covenant Lord. He is the living God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of the Exodus, the God of Bethlehem, the God of Calvary, the God of the empty tomb, the God of the glorious world to come. He's the God who, in his beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has expressed his love for a lost, dying, hopeless world, for people who hated him, despised him, rejected him, crucified him. He provided a complete and utter and total redemption in the blood and in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in his cross, in his sin-bearing, in his wrath-bearing, in his dereliction, in his forsakenness by his Father as he bore our sins and God's wrath. God has provided for us through that great atonement total forgiveness of all our sins and a perfect righteousness that will last forever. He is the God of grace, the God who provides grace, who lavishes his love upon us freely in Christ, flowing fully from him. The God who gives glory, who, when the time comes for us to die, takes us home to heaven, to the glorious realm of light and love and life. He is the God of all wonderful, matchless love and mercy. He receives repenting sinners like you and me who come to him, who bow before him, who humble ourselves in his presence to cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on me. He has mercy on us. He keeps us. He preserves us. He glorifies us. He is the God of infinite grace the gracious God, the good, wise, loving God, God himself, your God, will be my God. That's the key. That's the secret to the whole book. It's not just the secret of the book. It's the secret of our living. So he becomes our choicest possession. We sang about it, didn't we? Though all the world my choice deride, yet Jesus shall my portion be. You may have little else in life. You may be poor. You may struggle. You may have afflictions. You may may be ill. But you have Jesus. You have Jesus. Jesus has you. There's nothing, nothing, nothing to compare with that, nothing. For this, I have Jesus. That's what it means. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the savior of sinners, the one who came to redeem us, the one who lives to justify us, the one who will come to receive us, the one we will see and be like. For this, I have Jesus. So whatever else you don't have, you have him, your best, your choicest possession. You have him as teacher, you have him as king, you have him as protector, you have him as your saviour. He's worthy of our trust, he's worthy of our allegiance. Even at times of hardship and sorrow, he is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. We have his presence, his company, his love, his people, his church, his spirit spirit we have a family we belong to we have an identity that we never had before we have a destiny that is glorious nothing can separate us from the love of jesus christ our lord will you choose him will you stand with ruth and say your god will be my god maybe He is your mother and father's lord Make him your own. Maybe he's your wife's Lord. Make him your own. Maybe your husband's Lord. Make him your own. Your friends, your family. Make him yours. Choose him. Confess him. Join the company of his people. He's the one who is standing before you. Jonah cried out in that great cry of his in Jonah chapter 2, those who... Regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Mercy is yours if you will receive it. Christ is yours if you will have him. He's not yours until you possess him, but he's offered to you. They forsake their own mercy. Why are you holding back? Why are you not a Christian? What is it that's holding you back? Christ will receive you, and you will receive him if you really humble yourself before him and trust him. The alternative is too horrible to contemplate. God so loved the world that he gave his one begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's too awful to think about, too awful to contemplate as your destiny. But it's real. But he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Will you believe? Will you trust? Will you come? Will you stand with God's people? Will you say, I'm on the Lord's side. It's time I'm His. It's time I came. It's time I stopped prevaricating. I'm coming, Lord. I'm coming to you coming now to you, wash me, cleanse me. And he will. He will. Whatever you feel, he will. And you will discover as you choose him that all the time he's been choosing you, you decide for him because he's decided for you. Why not stand then with Ruth? Entreat me not to leave you. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be mine. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, if anything but death parts you and me. That's what we do when we come to Christ and he holds us, he has his grip on us, and we cannot perish.